You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, a typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You have to understand that the um, Syed's attorney and the state's attorney's office were working together on this. And right after they did their um, summaries and, you know, argued before the court, the judge made a decision just like that and said that they have uh, proven their grounds for vacating the conviction. She re said, remove the shackles from Ednan and Syed, said he's going to be released on his own recognizance. He will be on phone GPS monitoring. And not long after that, we saw Adnan walk out of that courtroom after so many times, you know, being hopeful and having his hopes dashed and the crowd went crazy. Now, we spoke with his attorney, Erica Souter, and here's what she had to say. Today, my friend and client Adnan Syed walks free for the first time in 23 years. In 1999, Adnan was a 17-year-old senior at Woodlawn High School. He had been accepted into college and planned to major in pre-med. Those dreams were ended when Adnan was accused of the brutal murder of his friend and classmate, Heyman Lee. Now, Heyman Lee's uh, brother, Young Lee, did appear in court on a Zoom call. He said to the judge, this is not a podcast, this is real life. And he asked the judge over and over again to please do the right thing. He did have a representative in the courtroom, Steve Kelly, and here's what he had to say after everything was over. We are disappointed that today's hearing happened so quickly and with virtually no notice, and that the court acted the way it did, and that the prosecutor's office made the recommendation the way that they did. This family is interested in the pursuit of justice. They want to know more than anybody who it was that killed Heyman Lee. Now, next steps. Uh, right now, the state, um, Marilyn Mosby said that they are waiting on some DNA testing to come back. This case 
continues to be investigated, but they have to decide within 30 days whether it's going to be a new trial or this will be null prost. Reporting live at the courthouse, Lisa Robinson, WBAL TV 11 News. Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell and the astounding news that Adnan Saeed is now home. He was sent home by Baltimore Circuit Judge Melissa Finn on Monday the 19th of September 2022. Adnan Saeed was convicted of first-degree murder, kidnapping and false imprisonment of his 18-year-old ex-girlfriend, Haymin Lee, in 2000. Adnan has steadfastly maintained his innocence and denied any involvement in Hay's murder. Now, many of you might recall that the case was subject to the podcast Serial, which debuted in 2014 and has been downloaded millions of times. Serial was the reason that I started podcasting. In fact, it was the first podcast that I listened to, and Serial was really the beginning of the proliferation of true crime podcasts. Now, a quick funny story before I dive into how and why Adnan Saeed is now free. Now, going back in time, my cousins Fahan and Zeshan were totally hooked on Serial, and they asked my opinion on what I thought about the case. Now, I told them that I hadn't heard about it, but I started listening to Serial. And once I started, I couldn't stop. I consciously sat for longer on trains and outside meetings, just so that I could hear the end of each episode. And I do remember hearing Sarah Koenig say something like, I've just got off the phone from Adnan. Can someone so charming really be a killer? When I heard that, I practically jumped out of my seat. Of course he could be a killer, I thought. Charm is one of the 20 traits of a psychopath. And at that time, it made me realise just how little Sarah must understand about crime and the criminals. But I still continued listening to Serial. It's funny because when Jim Clementi and I first discussed the case, we both bumped on the same thing that Sarah said. Now, when I met back up with my cousins and they asked me what I thought about Heyman Lee's case, I told them that I thought it was a fascinating case, but I had real concerns about Sarah because she didn't seem to have any in-depth knowledge about crime and criminals, and also because she spoke so incredibly quickly. I asked them whether it was part of the podcasting experience. Like you have to take in as much information as possible and very quickly. I still remember them looking at each other quizzically and then they burst out laughing. They told me the speed setting must be turned up on my phone and that I needed to change it. Ah, I said, having a light bulb moment. That would be it then. And I felt rather silly. I clearly had a lot to learn about this podcasting malarkey. Now I've been podcasting for more than six years, as I felt it really important to tell women's stories, and also that experts weigh in on cases too. Okay, so with that having been said, many of you asked me to give my two cents about the case, and I've listened as always. Now, full disclosure, I also asked Rabia Chowdhury to join me. She's a little busy right now, but I'm hoping to get her on soon. Also, I have analysed various aspects of this case before. In fact, you can listen to me deconstruct Jay Wilds' police-recorded interview with Bob Ruff on his podcast, Truth and Justice. I've just re-listened to it myself. And wow, there's some great analysis in it. It's a 2016 interview, 
and Jim Clementi was part of it too. We left Bob absolutely gobsmacked, and I stand by my analysis now, mainly that Jay was not a reliable witness, and it's most likely that he was coerced. Now, if you want to listen to that episode in full, I've added a link in the show notes, so go check that out. Okay, so I want to dive into how this came about. The state filed a 21-page motion recommending Adnan Saeed's conviction be vacated on the 14th of September 2022, and in this My Two Cents episode, I'm going to deconstruct the report, what happened at court, and also what happens next. The motion report itself is based on a year-long investigation, which is still ongoing. Now, the investigation has been undertaken between the state and the defence, and both believe that Adnan Saeed's conviction is not safe. Now, when this report landed on the 14th of September, this was huge, huge news. By way of context, the state has been saying for more than 23 years that they prosecuted and convicted the right man. And so for this to land, and this motion to be filed by the state, that's hugely significant. The report was authored and filed by Marilyn Mosby, the state's attorney for Baltimore City, and Becky Feldman, the assistant state's attorney. The motion cites Adnan Saeed's defence counsel, Erica Suter, director of the Office of the Public Defenders and University of Baltimore's Innocence Project, and you heard her in the clip at the top of the episode. Erica Suter originally brought the case to the attention of the Sentencing Review Unit after the Juvenile Restoration Act passed in April 2021, which allows persons convicted of crimes as juveniles to request a modification of sentence after they've served at least 20 years in prison. However, during that review, additional evidence emerged, requiring the state to conduct a more in-depth analysis. Erica Suter and the state uncovered Brady violations and new information about two alternate suspects as part of their year-long investigation. Additionally, the motion highlighted there are reliability issues regarding the most critical pieces of evidence presented at the first trial. Okay, so I'm going to highlight the significant components to the state's motion report and its headings. You all know that I always say the devil is in the detail, so I want you to hear that detail. Now, if you want to read the 21-page report for yourself, which I highly recommend that you do, the link is in the show notes. Okay, so heading one is the introduction, laying out the facts of the case and the investigation, and that investigative efforts are still ongoing, and that the state will continue to utilise all resources to investigate the case and bring a suspect or suspects to justice. Heading two is status of DNA testing. Now, in 2018, various items were DNA tested, which yielded mostly inconclusive results or no DNA results. There are, however, some remaining items still being reviewed for further testing. Heading three is the facts of the case. Now, the report says this, the facts of this case have been exhaustively detailed in prior court opinions. For the purposes of this motion, the most pertinent facts are as follows. The victim, 18-year-old Heyman Lee, was last seen at Woodlawn High School on January 13, 1999, around 2.15 to 2.30pm. Weeks later, on February 9, 1999, her body was discovered buried in Leakin Park. The cause of death was manual strangulation. 
The investigation turned to the victim's ex-boyfriend, Adnan Saeed, defendant as the suspect. The state's theory was that the relationship was on again, off again, and in December 1998, Miss Lee started a new relationship angering the defendant. The main pieces of evidence implicating defendant was the testimony of the cooperating co-defendant Jay Wilds, who testified basically to the following. Defendant said he was going to kill the victim. Defendant admitted to strangling the victim. Defendant showed Wilds the body in the trunk of her car, and Wilds helped defendant bury the body in Leakin Park. Wilds also directed police to the victim's car on February the 28th, in the area of the 300 block of Edgewood Avenue in Baltimore City. The other main piece of evidence came from the defendant's cell phone records. According to Wilds, the defendant lent him his cell phone and vehicle that day. The cell phone was in Wilds' possession at the time of the murder. Wilds and defendant were together at the time of the burial, around 7pm. The state relied upon billing records showing the phone was connected on incoming calls to cell towers placing defendant's phone in the vicinity of Leakin Park around 7pm. The state's contention was Wilds' testimony, coupled with the cell phone records, tied the defendant Adnan Saeed to the victim Heyman Lee's burial site in Leakin Park. Wilds pled guilty to accessory after the fact on September 7th, 1999. He testified against Adnan Saeed in February 2000. He was sentenced on July 6, 2000, to five years, all suspended, with two years probation. OK, so pay close attention to Jay Wilds here, and the fact that he was sentenced on July the 6, 2000, to five years, but it was all suspended. You'll hear more about Jay Wilds as I continue on. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Heading 4 is procedural history. Under Heading 4, much is written about the appeals and the legal process for requests to vacate convictions. Now, I'm not going to go into that other than to say that there have been various appeals and each time it looked like Adnan Saeed would get a new trial, it was overruled. Heading 5 is legal requirements. Now, this relates to laying out the 2019 Maryland legislation to allow the state to file a motion to vacate a conviction including the legal standard, the notification to the defendant and the request for a hearing. Heading 6 is entitled The 2021-2022 to Investigation 
two suspects have been developed. Now, this is where it gets extremely interesting to me. The motion states that the parties have developed evidence regarding the possible involvement of two alternative suspects and that the suspects may be involved individually or working together. Importantly, the suspects were known persons at the time of the original investigation. They were not properly ruled out. The motion explains that in order to protect the integrity of the ongoing investigation, they are not named in the report. There's a subheading A, Brady violation. It was reported to the state that one of the suspects had threatened to kill the victim and provided motives for that threat. The state located a document in the state's trial file which provided details about one of the suspects. A person notified the state that the suspect had threatened to kill Hay in the presence of another. He said he would, and I quote, make Hay disappear. He would kill her, end quote. A separate document was also located with a different person claiming the same information. Importantly, this evidence was not turned over to the defence, nor was it included in any of the various discovery pleadings the state produced each time it disclosed new information to the defence, the motion claims. The report further states, that's a Brady violation. Now, for those who are unclear what a Brady violation is, here's a quick explanation. It's when there's exculpatory evidence that is significant and it's withheld or suppressed and not given to the defence and that if it were, a different outcome may have occurred. So it's really significant. Moreover, to prevail on a Brady claim, the defendant must plead and prove that 1. the prosecution suppressed evidence, 2. the evidence was favourable to the defendant, either as to guilt or punishment, and 3. evidence was material to the issue of guilt or punishment. The state wrote in the report that considering the totality of evidence now available, the information about an alternative suspect would have been helpful to the defence because it would have helped substantiate an alternative suspect defence that was consistent with the defence's strategy at trial. Additionally, the evidence against the defendant was not overwhelming and was largely circumstantial. Therefore, evidence such as an alternative suspect tends to carry more weight in this analysis. Heading B is new evidence. The location of the victim's car was located directly behind the house of one of the suspect's family members. They were living there in 1999. This was discovered in 2022. Next is subheading C. New information. One of the suspects attacked a woman in her car. The suspect was convicted for this. This occurred after the trial. The specifics haven't been detailed in the report to protect the integrity of the ongoing investigation. The next subheading is D. New information. One of the suspects engaged in serial rape and sexual assault. The state and defence have obtained credible information that one of the suspects had engaged in multiple instances of rape and sexual assault of compromised or vulnerable victims in a systematic, deliberate and premeditated way. The suspect was convicted of this offence. Now, okay, the report basically says that this information wasn't available at the time, but this is huge. It's so important that this suspect, this individual, is properly and robustly reinvestigated. Subheading E, new information. One of the suspects engaged in violence against a woman known to him. 
The defence located formally documented evidence of allegations that one of the suspects had engaged in aggressive and or violent acts towards a woman known to him and forcibly confined her. It was also alleged that this suspect made threats against the life of this person. These events happened prior to the trial in this case, and this information was known to the state. Given the circumstances of the victim's death, this evidence would have been consequential to the defence's theory of the case. This, again, is huge for me. Is this domestic abuse? Most likely. You've heard me talk many times about how men treat women in their significant relationships really does tell you everything you need to know about how they would treat women outside the home. We must make the links. It's so important that violence against women is not overlooked. This is exactly what I talk about time and time again. And what's clear to me is that one or both of these suspects are serial perpetrators. They've harmed multiple women. And what I'm deeply concerned about is how many other women have they harmed in the meantime? That is a question that must be answered and it must be looked at. It is absolutely unconscionable that these dangerous men have been out there harming women. It really makes me incredibly angry reading this. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The next subheading is F, new information. One of the suspects was improperly cleared as a suspect. The suspect failed the polygraph. He said he was distracted. The police allowed him to do a second test. The police told prosecutors he'd passed with flying colours when he hadn't. The next heading is number seven, the reliability of the evidence at trial. And I'm going to read out some extracts from the motion. The state contends that the Brady violation alone would substantiate the granting of a new trial. The new evidence regarding the possible involvement of two alternative suspects also gives the state grave concern. The report continues, but considering the seriousness of this case and the importance of holding the right suspect accountable, the state also extensively reviewed the evidence presented at the first trial and notes several additional concerns below as to why it no longer has faith in the integrity of the conviction. Subheading A. The state cannot rely on the incoming call evidence based on the post-conviction court's findings. Okay, so much of Adnan Saeed's original trial hinged on cell phone data records, which corroborated some of Jay Wilde's testimony regarding Adnan Saeed's whereabouts throughout the day. However, the notice on the record specifically advised that the billing locations for incoming calls would not be considered reliable information for location. Despite this notice, prosecutors used the billing location for incoming calls for exactly that purpose, to prove that the defendant, Adnan Saeed, was in a particular area at a particular time. Most critical to the state's case were the incoming calls allegedly received in the Leakin Park area at 7.09pm and 7.16pm. 11 of the 32 calls on the 13th of January were incoming calls. The report continued that various experts were consulted with 
And based on the cellular technology at the time of the incident in this case, it was possible that an incoming call could be recorded at the last registered tower and not the current one when the signal is sent across multiple towers within an area. Significantly, the motion report concluded, upon review of the totality of information now at the state's disposal, the state does not believe the incoming call location evidence is reliable. Okay, so for me, that's another key plank of the original state's case that has been shown to be unreliable based on what's known now. The next subheading in the report is B, new information that Christina Vinson's version of events was incorrect. Now, Christina Vinson's testimony was used to corroborate Jay Wilds' version of events. She claimed that she saw Jay and Adnan around 6pm on the 13th of January and Adnan got an incoming call and quickly left. However, in the HBO 2019 documentary, The Case Against Adnan Saeed, she was presented with a copy of her winter schedule at UMBC, which detailed that she had an evening class scheduled for the 13th of January. The class met three times, and she indicated that she would not have missed a class. This calls into question her testimony and Jay Wilds's testimony about the 13th of January. The next subheading is C. The state cannot rely on Jay Wilds's testimony. The first line reads, Relying on Jay Wilds's testimony in and of itself is a concern for the state. And yes, I 100% agree. There are many inconsistencies and discrepancies, and I really recommend you listen to Jim Clementi and I deconstruct his police-recorded interview with Bob Ruff on Truth and Justice. Take a listen to this clip from the episode with Bob. In my opinion, Jim and Laura's analysis was absolutely spot on, and it was incredible to me that they both came to the exact same conclusions independently of each other. They didn't corroborate with each other at all. They both heard the recording for the first time with me sitting right there in front of them, and I can attest to the fact that neither one of them shared any information with the other when they were taking their notes. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, the minute we shut the recording off, we went directly into the studio and began recording. So the fact that both of them came to the same conclusion independently is huge for me. And in my opinion, they just blew this case wide open. I've suspected for a long time that Jay Wilds didn't actually know anything about the crime, but now I can say that I am 100% convinced. Jay knows nothing about this crime. He was absolutely coerced into giving that testimony, and I hope that Ritz and McGillivary are held accountable for what they've done. The next heading is 8, Detective William Ritz's Past Misconduct. The report details that the two detectives who investigated Heyman Lee's case were Detective William Ritz and Detective Greg McGillery. The motion highlights Detective Ritz's misconduct in another case, the State versus Malcolm Bryant, which resulted in an exoneration in 2016. Bryant was wrongfully convicted of a murder in 1999 and served 17 years before his exoneration. Noticeably, in the Bryant case, it was alleged in the complaint that Detective Ritz failed to disclose exculpatory and impeachment evidence and fabricated evidence. The Bryant estate sued Baltimore Police Department, Detective Ritz and a forensic analyst called Barry Verger in 2019 for the wrongful conviction. In 2022, Baltimore's City Board of Estimates approved an $8 million settlement to the Bryant estate. My goodness, Detective Ritz's history is indeed alarming, 
and cannot be ignored. If he behaved like that in Bryant's case, what else has he done in other cases? My recommendation is that all his other cases must now be reviewed as a matter of priority. Okay, so the motion concluded, and I'm going to quote, that there's an abundance of issues that gives the state overwhelming cause for concern. The state further asserts that it's in the interests of justice and fairness that the defendant at a minimum be afforded a new trial at this time. The state also prays for the defendant to be released on his own recognizance pending the continued investigation. The report stated that the state intends to continue with all available resources to fully and thoroughly reinvestigate this matter to ensure accountability and justice for the victim, Heimin Lee. However, the state submits that the continued incarceration of the defendant while the investigation of the case proceeds, considering all the information above, would be a miscarriage of justice. So when I read all of this in the report on the 14th of September, I too posted on social media saying that at the absolute bare minimum, Adnan Saeed deserves a new trial. I also spoke about this on BBC Radio 5 Live. Again, I've put the links in the show notes if you want to listen to it. Also, just a reminder that this is the state saying that Adnan Saeed should be sent home and that it is their miscarriage of justice to keep Adnan Saeed in prison based on all what they've learned in this year-long investigation. So it's quite frightening and terrifying, or to use Rabia Chowdhury's word, scarifying, that Adnan Saeed has been in prison for 23 years. It's also clear that there does need to be a reinvestigation, and the fact that that's happening is huge. This reinvestigation is so important to ensure accountability and justice for the victim, Heimin Lee. And we mustn't forget Heimin Lee and her family in all of this. This is no doubt incredibly difficult and painful for them. And on that important point, I'm going to share with you what happened at court at the hearing on Monday the 19th of September. And by the way, this is an incredibly quick turnaround from the 14th of September to the 19th of September. So three days later, Judge Melissa Finn, in court, asked Becky Feldman if Heyman Lee's family had been notified and she said that she had notified them on the 12th of September. Now I was following live tweets from journalist Lee Sanderlin of the Baltimore Sun from court. He was there in person. So big shout out to Lee. And you can follow Lee at Lee O'Sanderlin on Twitter. He tweeted that Steve Kelly, the Lee's family attorney, challenged that the state's attorney's office did not give the family enough notice for them to meaningfully participate. He said, to suggest the state's attorney's office has provided adequate notice under these circumstances is outrageous. Steve Kelly noted that the office had publicly maintained Adnan Saeed's guilt and that last week's filing was a sudden about-face. Steve Kelly urged Judge Finn to consider to postpone the hearing for seven days so that young Lee, Hayes' younger brother who lives in California, could attend in person. Judge Finn said that many hearings had been virtual due to the pandemic and she didn't have the patience for a postponement. Steve Kelly said that young Lee never told the state he would attend a hearing even virtually until Sunday evening. However, he wasn't notified until Friday afternoon and it appeared at court that they realised he wasn't on the Zoom. 
Now, in Maryland, law requires, in inverted commas, reasonableness for notice when no time frame is explicitly provided. And like I said, this moved incredibly quickly. Becky Feldman said that she contacted Young Lee last Monday, September the 12th, when they decided to pursue the motion to vacate, but she didn't actually speak with him until Tuesday, and she gave him an advance copy of the motion. Steve Kelly countered that Young Lee didn't understand on Sunday afternoon that he actually had a right to participate in the hearing on the Monday. Judge Finn, having heard both sides, denied Steve Kelly's motion for postponement and said he had had enough time to find and retain an attorney to advise him of his rights. Judge Finn directed Steve Kelly to call Young Lee, who was at work in California, and see if he wanted to say something at the hearing. Steve Kelly told the court that Young Lee was off work and could join in 30 minutes. The court took a recess until then. Now at around 12.31, the court was back in session, and at 12.37, Young Lee addressed the court and said this, My heart is pounding right now. I personally wanted to be there, in person. I've been living with this for like 20 plus years. Every day when I think it's over, or it's ended, it always comes back. It's killing me. It's really tough. As I always say, there's no closure. But he continued that he trusts the courts and the justice system, and that this motion blindsided him because he thought the prosecution was on his side. He said, and I quote, I feel betrayed. But he added, he's not against the investigation. And it's tough for me to swallow, especially for my mum. He asked the court to make the right decision. Also, he said knowing that there could be someone out there free for killing his sister is difficult. He was very emotional, working through tears, and obviously he spent 23 years thinking that the prosecution had the right person. I mean, it's really a lot for him and his family to get their heads round in a very short space of time. I also want to say I was very perturbed and upset by some people's reaction on Twitter, against the family. Let's not forget that they are the victims. They didn't ask for any of this. They're trying to comprehend a huge amount of information in a very short space of time. Judge Finn said that she was mindful of how difficult it is for Young Lee and his family, and she thanked him for his input, and said that she now wanted to move to the actual hearing itself. So Becky Feldman asked Judge Finn to vacate the conviction and clarified that it didn't mean the charges are dropped, just that authorities felt that more needs to be done and more needs to be investigated. Becky Feldman then went through key points from the 21-page motion, including the possible other suspects, just like I have done in this episode. She said she got her hands on the actual file on the 22nd of June, And in court, she detailed the other two suspects and said that she didn't know why they were not cleared by the police. She detailed the cell phone location evidence and the fact that it would not be admissible in court now. She reminded the court that it was cell phone location data which put Adnan at Heyman Lee's burial site. Becky Feldman also outlined Detective Ritz who investigated the case as being unreliable and Jay Wilds' testimony, which the state also believes is unreliable. The upshot of all of this? Baltimore Circuit Judge Melissa Finn determined in the interests of justice and fairness Adnan Saeed's conviction be overturned. In her order vacating Adnan Saeed's conviction, she said this. Upon consideration of the paper, 
in-camera review of evidence, proceedings and oral arguments of counsel made upon the record, the court finds that the state has proven grounds for vacating the judgment of conviction in the matter of Adnan Saeed. Specifically, the state has proven that there was a Brady violation. That's huge. She ordered Anand Saeed be released under home detention. His shackles were removed. Judge Melissa Finn ordered a new trial. While the judge has now vacated the original judgment, the conviction for first-degree murder, kidnap and false imprisonment, in layperson's terms, Adnan Saeed is free because he didn't receive a fair trial. So what happens next, you're probably wondering. Well, Adnan Saeed has been released and is on home detention with GPS monitoring, with alert. The state's attorney now decides whether to try him again. The state can schedule a new trial date or can decide not to prosecute him again. But they have to make a decision within 30 days of the order. In any event, the investigation must continue, and it will. And I hope the two suspects identified in the motion are robustly pursued and there are other suspects that should be investigated too. Furthermore, I also believe the original prosecutor, Kevin Ulrich, should be fully investigated and held accountable for his decisions, along with the detectives in the case. I'm going to wrap with my end thoughts for Adnan not being allowed a fair trial, which was his right. He was 17 years old at the time. He apparently told police he wanted to finish his Othello assignment when the police wanted to interview him. That's instructive to me. You see, he thought he would be returning to finish that assignment. He didn't know he'd spend the rest of his life in prison. I also want to pay tribute to Erica Suter, Adnan's lawyer, Rabia Chowdhury and the Undisclosed team, Marilyn Mosby, Becky Feldman and Judge Finn, all incredible women, bar Colin Miller, who never gave up. And I hope that justice follows for Heyman Lee. And so my final thoughts are with Heyman Lee and her family. Until next time, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instinct. Here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to Crime Analyst or on the website www.crime-analyst.com. It really helps others find me and also helps with the ratings. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art and graphics by Chris Robottom at Syndicate and music by Kilrood. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Mail checks, invoices, documents, and everything you need to keep your business running. Get rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS. And with the mobile app, you can take care of mailing on the go. Make the same no-brainer decisions as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.